Hello, friends. Thank you so much for joining me for this podcast. I want to talk about abuse today. And when I mention the word abuse, well, I mean, it's a broad category. I mean, there is like an abuse spectrum. In today's culture, on one side of the spectrum, it could include such things as microaggressions, which can be anything from subtle to intentional slights toward another person. And then as you move all the way to the far right, on the other end of the abuse spectrum, what you'll find is some of the more heinous events that can happen to a human being. For those of you who have gone through the darker and the weightier aspects of abuse, I want to share a few things with you in this podcast. In fact, I have four things that I want to share with you. And so I'm not going to talk about microaggressions. I'm not going to talk about that end of the abuse spectrum, but I do want to jump in the deep end. Those of you who have been hurt, some of you are struggling tremendously right now. There are others of you who, well, you were abused a long time ago, but the residual effect, it lingers on. And so I trust that that what I have to say to you will, will benefit you. Welcome to the podcast. You're listening to Your Daily Drive. I am Rick Thomas, and I'm so glad that you are here. If you want to read what I'm sharing from this podcast, you can go to the article on the website. It's titled, Four Things to Know When Working Through Abuse. You're welcome to read this article, to share it with a friend. For those of you who do help others, who do the work of disciple-making or counseling, uh, I would encourage you to add this article to your toolbox and use it as you care for those who have gone through these significant, life-changing, life-altering events. Before I get into the four things that I want to share with you, I want to have a, a long preface because I know that when I talk about abuse, uh, it is a super sensitive uh, subject, and I'm well aware of that. And so I want to be careful. I want to wordsmith uh, in the appropriate way. I don't want to be offensive. And so if you could be patient with me, I would appreciate it. There are three things that I want to share with you before I get into the four things that I, I want you to take away from this podcast. First, I want to share with you an apology. Number two, I want to talk about where this con where the content from this podcast came from, a brief story on how it came about. And then I want to talk about the idea of mortification, this idea of of taking the life uh, out of our out of our sin, uh, taking the strength out of our sin so that we can really walk in in true victory and and that's called mortification. So let me give you an apology first. I realize, Abuse is a broad topic, and so it's not possible to cover everything that needs to be said in one podcast or one article. And so I can only give you a little bit of information, but if you want to read uh, more about what we have to say on abuse, we have many articles on our website. You can go to our topical index, a beautiful page that has all of the topics for all of our articles, and you can look under the abuse category and you'll find quite a few articles there that will serve you. This podcast is a small attempt, hopefully, to bring some clarity to your mind and calmness to your soul. If abuse has been your experience, you will need much more than what I'm offering in this podcast. And, and I think most of you who have gone through, divorce, uh, gone through abuse, you know that because it's such a, a 
big and deep and broad and significant event in your life. In fact, it's not just an event. It's a long, arduous journey. There are things that the abused person must know right after the abuse happens. And then there, there's a different kind of help months and years later. That's that long, arduous journey. It's like when somebody dies, uh, some, a relative dies. And when you, you care for that, you care for the loved ones. You, you do that at the death event within 12, 24 hours, and you, you bring counsel in a particular way because it's acute in that moment. But then six weeks later, six months later, you're still caring for them, but you're caring in a different way because time has gone by. They are now in the journey as they grieve the death of a loved one. Well, abuse is alike like that as well. And, and so if somebody has just been abused, that requires a specific kind of soul care for those who are working through it six months, six years Later, that's another kind of care. So in this podcast, what I am going to share with you is for those people who are farther down the road working through their abuse. They are at the place where they are almost over it as much as one can be over it. And so it's important that you hear that because there are some things that these will be some challenging concepts for you if you're not that far down the road. And so if the abuse is fresh and if it is acutely active in your mind, these words might not be as redemptive as they could be because you have not had enough time and are not enough space from your abuser. It's too close. It's too sensitive now. And so I want you to know that there are no quick fixes for this kind of sin crime, which is why it's essential for you to know which mile marker you are at as you work through overcoming abuse. And so please accept my apology that this is not an exhaustive treatment of abuse, and I am only speaking to a specific kind of person. That is an individual who is much farther along in the journey of working through it. And then the second thing in this long extended preface is I want to give you a brief story of, of where these ideas came from, how they originated. I'm going to share with you the things that I shared with one of our mastermind students during one of our regular monthly calls. We have a mastermind program on our website. It's an all online training program where people come to us and they want to learn how to do discipleship or biblical counseling, if you prefer that language. And it is an intensive, intrusive, it is a comprehensive training program. And part of our training is I do meet with our students once a month to talk about whatever's important to them, just whatever way we can serve them in their ongoing sanctification. And so this particular mastermind student had gone through abuse several decades ago. She is older now, wiser. She has gone through the critical counseling necessary to work through most of the residual effect of the abuse. Now, again, granted, 
tested. You you never get over it, which doesn't have to be a bad thing because at some point you can even leverage your abuse for God's glory as you use it as part of how you help other people. And so I shared some things with her, and I thought it would be beneficial for some of you. What she did is she read my article, The Reason I Stopped Hating My Dad, as you can hear in that title, it's autobiographical. And she wanted to know how I worked through the physical, the verbal, the manipulative abuse of my alcoholic father. You see, she is transitioning from the counseling stage to the counselor stage, which we all should be doing. And of course, that's one of the reasons that she's in our training program. Again, she's farther down the road from her abuse. There's a lot of distance and space from her abuser, and she's moved from the counseling stage of her life to the counselor stage, and she's in our program, and so she wanted to know how I work through my own abuse. You could say that she wanted to clean up the last vestiges of what happened to her so that she can live in the fullest possible freedom. She said to me, Rick, it's time to move on. And it is. At some point, every person has to move on from their negative past. If you don't move on, the struggling person will limp along, carrying the past like a ball and chain. And so that's kind of the backstory of where these four ideas came from. These are the things that I shared with her. And then the third thing in this extended preface is I want to talk about this idea of Christian maturity and mortification, because the goal here is to continue to grow in Christian maturity, and a key aspect of growing is mortification. The process of Christian maturity, it is a path, not a destination. It's like fine wine. It continues to get better with age. There won't be a time that you will be all that you could be, for the Lord and for others, but you should always be reforming and transforming for God's fame. Christian maturity is like, say, I am going to San Diego. Well, it's not a destination. I mean, that's the destination, but you're not going to be mature when you get to get to San Diego. That's the end point. Uh, you get mature through the process of heading toward San Diego. You experience maturity on the journey. And so you, you want to keep pressing toward that destination. It is an ongoing process until you meet Jesus. And so the way that Christian maturity happens is with this idea of mortification. And it's important that you understand what mortification is. It's the concept of always making dead the things that hinder you from benefiting from mature Christ-likeness. And so to mortify, and it's what you're going to have to do as you listen to these four things that I'm going to share with you. You're going to have to mortify. You've got to make some things dead in your life so that you can be alive in Christ. And so to mortify is to be regularly taking the life out of the enemy's strength, like sucking the vitality out of your Adamic self. 
Rather than experiencing persistent and debilitating weakness, you want to experience daily renewal. This is what mortification is. And it adds one aspect of God's strength onto the next. Listen to how Paul talked about it in 2 Corinthians 4.16. He said, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, you see the downward trend of our outer self, but he says our inner self is being renewed day by day. That's why I said you add one aspect of God's strength onto the next. You are increasing an upward trend, being renewed day by day. You do that through the process of mortification. And so at the beginning of working through abuse, when it is acute and and painful, you're like in triage, receiving emergency services. But as you process through your spiritual rehab, things aren't as urgent or as acute, but the residual effect, the memories and the strongholds of the mind, they can still have power over you and they may want to manage you. And so at some point, you need to say, as my student did, it's time to move on. And that's not wishful thinking. Uh, That is a real place where she is. It's time to move on. She wants to continue to mortify, to put to death those things that are still lingering in her mind. And so that's my long preface. I do apologize that I'm only dealing with one aspect of abuse, those that are farther along the path. The things that I'm going to share with you came from a conversation that I had with my student. And the foundation to everything I'm going to say to you has to do with mortification, putting these things to death so that you can grow and continue to mature in Christ-likeness. The title of the podcast, Four Things to Know When You're Working Through Abuse. All right, let's jump into those four things. The first one, and this is the order that I gave to my friend, our mastermind student, it has to do with sin. And unfortunately, I know that sounds negative, and and we're not on sin hunt here. This is not what it's about, but we're talking about sin. I mean, sin is what happened to you if you have been abused. And so if you're at this spot in your progressive sanctification, what I want you to do as you think about sin, what we have to do is we have to level the playing field as you think about the person who hurt you. And the first step in doing this is you have to take sin and you have to separate it into two categories. And I want you to listen carefully here. There are two ways of looking at sin. You can look at sin consequentially and you can look at sin ontologically. Now, let me explain what that means. One type, consequential sins, what that is is the effect of sin. The measure It measures the depth and the breadth and the effect of sin. As you, as you might imagine, some transgressions are worse than others. Abuse is worse than most. Murder, for example, is consequentially worse than, let's say, gossiping about someone. You can test my theory by asking a a very fundamental question. If one of two things could happen to you, which one would you prefer, someone gossiping about you or someone murdering you? 
Well, all rational people would ask for the lesser of two evils because it's not nearly as bad for someone to gossip about you than to murder you, not from a consequential perspective. And so that is one way of looking at sin. Now, the other category is ontological. And what I mean by ontological is who we are in Adam. Ontology is your state of being. It's our state in Adam. Now, our state in Adam, yours and mine, are the same. The doctrinal label for this could be total depravity, which means that we're equally broken, equally desperate, equally evil. We're equally alienated from God. And so it's important when you think about sin that you think about these two aspects because they're really different, and I trust you can feel that you can sense that because you need to understand these two categories because the abused person, they may hear something like this, quote, are you saying I'm the same as my abuser? But I have never done anything remotely close to what he did. I dare you make such an insensitive accusation. Well, that's why we want to slow down here, because if that is what you're hearing, then you're not hearing what I am saying. If you filter, we're all the same, through the grid of consequential sins, then I appeal to you to change your filter because that's not the lane that you want to walk down, and that is not what I am saying. You see, my dad, what my dad did to me compared to my sin list, my personal sin list, those are two radically different things. I've done some bad things in my life, but consequentially speaking, he's a bigger sinner than I am, consequentially speaking. And if you read that article about hating my daddy, well, you'll see that I'm not talking about comparative sin list. He did this, I did this, and from a consequential perspective, but the way that I work through the abuse of my daddy is not the consequences of our two sin lists, but who we both were in Adam without God. Total depravity does not mean that we have committed every evil atrocity known to humanity, but that we have the potential to do so. Hitler, for example, his sin stack, if you could stack up all his sins, is much higher and more atrocious than yours, I understand. But from an ontological perspective, not consequential, but from an ontological perspective, you and I have the potential of doing worse than what he did, God forbid. Because we're equally corrupt, equally broken, equally depraved from an ontological perspective. Any person can commit any act of violence against anyone because we're all the same in Adam. Now, this sobering truth about who we are ontologically without God and our desperate need for him should have an appropriate humbling effect which sets us up to think differently about our abusers. After I stopped comparing my dad's sin list to my sin list and recognized that I'm capable ontologically of doing what he did or even worse, 
my attitude toward him began to change. It did not come quickly, but the ice caps in my heart began to melt. And so the first thing that I shared with my mastermind student is this idea of sin. We separated it out. We're not talking about the consequences. We're not comparing sin list, but we're talking about who everybody is in Christ without, without God, and we're all the same. Now that sets you up to move to the second point. And if the ice caps begin to melt and you realize that even though what your abuser did is a zillion times worse than anything that you ever did, but yet, ontologically, you're the same as your abuser, as hard as that may be to hear, that sets you up for the next step, which is practical forgiveness. Now you can start moving toward forgiveness. Now, as you do that, there are two categories of forgiveness. There is attitudinal forgiveness and transactional forgiveness. Attitudinal forgiveness is an attitude of the heart. And you can have an attitude of forgiveness toward the abuser, and your abuser may never know about it. Transactional forgiveness is different. It is actually an exchange with the abuser. Will you forgive me, he asks, and you say, I will forgive you. That is a, a different kind of moment. Now, let me caveat here or footnote. I do not recommend that the abused and the abuser come together in an attempt to reconcile face-to-face transactionally. And so I'm not going to be talking about transactional forgiveness because it would be exceptional for that to happen in virtually every case where we're at this end of the abuse spectrum. I don't recommend that the you put the abused with the abuser. I think that could be very unkind and could prove to be disastrous. And so I'm not talking about transactional forgiveness, but I want to talk about attitudinal forgiveness because you can do that again and never see your abuser. You see, the primary goal is helping the abused person to get out from under the weight of what happened to them. You want that hurting soul at the point where the abuse event is not controlling them. And that can occur through attitudinal forgiveness. The big idea is to release the abuser in your heart, like, Father, forgive them, as Jesus said from the cross. They did not receive forgiveness in a transactional way at the cross because they were not asking But what you hear from Jesus on the cross, you hear a heart of forgiveness that released him from having their atrocities managing him. Now, perhaps it can be reconciliation to some degree in the future between the abuser and the abused, but that is not your first objective, and I've already footnoted that. I don't recommend that in most cases. You take that case by case, but I just caution you to be very careful about even thinking about or having that line of thinking. The primary goal, you want to help the abused to work through the weight of what happened and its ongoing effects. Forgiveness is the key. In this case, 
attitudinal forgiveness so that the abused person is not managed by what happened. Abuse has a way of creating a stronghold in the mind as the victim lives in a perpetual cycle of thinking about what happened to them. Now, this idea of forgiveness, forgiveness can be tricky sometimes because when you get into the forgiveness scenarios as we're doing now, the abused person may be tempted to use unforgiveness as an ally to protect them from future hurt. You see, sometimes people who have been hurt by, by others, they could think that if they forgive them, that the abuser is free to enter their lives and do it again. And what they're doing is they use unforgiveness like a barrier, like a roadblock that keeps the abuser from attacking them. And what they're really doing is they're conflating two things. They're conflating forgiveness with a future relationship, and that is not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about forgiveness. I'm not talking about a future relationship. In fact, I've already said I'm not, I wouldn't even put the abused and the abuser together to transact forgiveness. And so you want to see if they're thinking this way because they may have a hard time forgiving the person because they're using forgiveness as a way of protecting themselves. And then another way, they may misuse forgiveness is by weaponizing it. In this instance, they are conflating forgiveness with anger. It could sound like this. I won't forgive him because of what he did to me, which can be a form of anger that is born out of deep pain. They can't hurt the abuser the way the abuser hurt them, but they can withhold forgiveness which becomes a form of punishment. And so you want to release them from this false narrative. And so as you think about forgiveness, there's two things that I want you to consider. Forgiveness does not have to mean you're going to have a relationship with them. You don't want them to conflate that. And then number two, unforgiveness is not a biblical method to punish someone. And so point number one, you want to think about this idea of sin from an ontological perspective. We want to level the ground at the cross. Hopefully, we'll start to melt the ice caps in our heart, which opens the door for attitudinal forgiveness. And then point number three, we want to start flipping the narrative. At this juncture, they are at that glorious place of flipping the narrative in their lives. It is Joseph's commentary on his unjust suffering. What you meant for evil, the Lord meant for good. You know this in Genesis 50, 20. You can see why I said that these ideas are farther down the road of healing for the abused. It takes a while to learn how to embrace this narrative, the flipping the narrative for redemptive purposes. Ultimately, we don't have full authorship of our life story. We are in a relationship with God, and we cooperate with him, but he's the author. Every Christian must come to this place of recognizing that all things do work together for good. God has a plan for your life, and the heartbreak is the process that draws you closer to him, fills you with a deeper understanding, and releases you to work with the Lord in setting other captives free. If the abused is at this maturation point in their sanctification— I am sure that they've already seen 
the possibilities of narrative flipping from a horrific story to a redemptive story. They have already helped the downcast, the brokenhearted, the hurting, the afflicted. You may want to ask them to look in their rearview mirror. Perhaps they will see folks that God has brought into their lives. They were the person that had the perfect word for another wounded soldier. If they are this far along in the process, there will be those that they have helped already. And so encourage them. Help them to see how God is using them already. And so point number three, you want to talk about this idea of flipping the narrative from a horrific story to a redemptive one. And then finally, the ongoing process, point number four, of suffering well. Learning how to suffer well is one of the hardest things for Christians to do. The accumulation of the bad things in our lives can build up like soot in an old stovepipe. You want to teach your friend how to put off those bad shaping influences and to renew their minds and to put on another kind of attitude. That's that three-step process that Paul laid out for us in Ephesians 2. Uh, Ephesians 4, 22, 23, and 24, put off, renew, put on. Practically speaking, you want them to understand Paul's replacement principle in this Ephesians template. You see, they just can't stop thinking evil thoughts. If they just stop thinking evil thoughts, they will create a vacuum, and we don't. their minds can't be a vacuum. Something will fill their minds, and so you want to help them to stop thinking evil thoughts, and, and you want them to fill their minds with those things that are true and lovely and of good report. And as they keep on forgiving the person in their heart, as they keep on flipping the narrative from evil to good, well, then you want them to add gratitude to what they put on. They are actively putting on Christ by their gratitude. Ultimately, they must see their past as a gift from God that they want to steward well for his fame, for their good, and the transformative benefit of many. This podcast is four things to know when working through abuse. Thanks for listening.